Thank you for accessing this audio resource from Glad Tidings Church. This is Pastor Tim Rice. I hope you enjoy the message and receive some benefit from it. If you do, please let us know. Send your comments to info at gladtidings.church. Now, here's this week's message. All right, let's look at Acts chapter 25. As we draw near to the end of the book of Acts, um, the, the timeline begins to narrow a little bit. And, and it focuses mainly on the final drama of Paul's ministry, which is specifically his imprisonment and then also his, his eventual, his final journey to Rome, where eventually uh, in Rome he uh, gives his life as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 25, we're not going to read the entire chapter this morning. We're going to read a couple of selections from chapter 25. Uh, but chapter 25 records a key moment in, in that drama, which is Paul's appeal to Caesar. So let me review very, uh, very quickly. You remember Paul was arrested in Jerusalem after a disturbance that had been caused by the Jews when Paul went into the temple. They caused a disturbance. The Romans came in, rescued him, but arrested him and, uh, from, from the Jews. And then uh, he was quickly then transferred to Caesarea because the Jews had plotted to kill Paul. And so in Caesarea, he appears before Felix, who is the governor of uh, the Roman governor of Judea. Felix um, can't find any, anything to substantiate the charges that are against Paul. Nevertheless, the Bible told, tells us that he decided to keep Paul in prison, even though he found him uh, not guilty, he kept him in prison. Aren't you thankful for, uh, for our system today? It says if you're not guilty, you're free to go, amen? Uh, Paul was actually found not guilty, but they said, ah, but we're going to keep you locked up anyway. Um, so Felix kept him locked up because, first of all, he wanted to do the Jews a favor. He wanted to find a way to do the Jews a favor. And then second of all, remember, he hoped that Paul might give him money, bribe him uh, to release him. And so two years later, he stays in jail for two years, Two years later, Felix is replaced by Festus, and Paul's case is brought once again uh, to the attention of the Roman governor of Judea, who is now Festus. And so if you look in chapter 25, Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse number 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man... Then let them bring charges against him. Verse 6, And after he had stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down uh, from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. And Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there to be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. 
To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give, uh, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12, then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you must go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, speak to us through your word this morning, Lord. I believe that, God, you have something to say to each one of us this morning. And so, God, give us the ears to hear it, Lord. Father, I pray for the anointing to be able to communicate your truth to your people, Lord. Have your way, God. Accomplish all that you desire Father, we'll give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Paul's appeal to Caesar, which is contained in this chapter, is, is actually the subject of some uh, second, second guessing by scholars and, and different individuals. In fact, it appears uh, that his appeal is a wholly unnecessary legal move. It's a, a decision that he did not have to make. After all, he had already been declared not guilty. So it appears to some as an unnecessary legal move. Paul had already been found not guilty by Felix. And, and in fact, uh, the scripture confirms that, that Festus has to affirm the same uh, verdict, that he can find nothing wrong with Paul either. So he's, he, he determines that Paul is not guilty. And, and later, King Agrippa, which will come into our story in just a moment, King Agrippa will say that Paul's not guilty. In fact, Agrippa will say this, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. In other words, there's no charges against him. He's not guilty. He could have been set free, but he has appealed to, to Caesar. So Paul's plea here seems to be the sort of decision uh, that you would like to be able to do over once you learn about the implications. Anybody ever made a decision like that before? You've done something, you've said something, and then you realize the implications, and you said, I wish I, I, wish I could take that back. I wish I could do that over. So this, it seems that Paul's plea is that sort of, that sort of thing, that uh, it was unnecessary. He was um, not guilty. He could have been set free if he had not appealed uh, to Caesar. But how many knows we don't get do-overs, uh, do we? Um, besides, as we've already observed, and this is more to the point, God does not abandon his children to chance, amen? So what happens in Paul's situation is, is not accidental, it's not coincidental, it's not chance, because God doesn't abandon his children to chance, and God does not conduct the future by coincidence. We've already talked about that. God has a plan. God works his plan, and God is in control. So God is involved in our choices, even when we make bad choices or bad decisions. And, and I'm not saying that Paul made a bad choice here. I'm just saying that we sometimes do make bad choices, don't we? We sometimes do make bad decisions. Aren't you thankful that even in those moments when we make bad choices or bad decisions, it doesn't shorten God's arm? God's still in control. God, God is not up in heaven when we make a bad choice and saying, oh, well, I was going to do this, but now you decided that, and so my hands are tied. How many knows God's hands are never tied? Amen. 
So even when we make bad choices and bad decisions, God is still involved. In fact, God is able to turn our mistakes into miracles. God is able to turn those things around and make them serve His purposes. And so we've already been talking about that in in this series. At any rate, it's Paul's appeal to Caesar that will take him to Rome. It's that decision that will eventually take him on to Rome. And in fact, it's that decision that will fulfill the word that God had already given to Paul. Remember, as early as Ephesus, Paul said, I must go on to Jerusalem. And then the Holy Spirit tells me I should go on to Jerusalem. And then somehow after that, I'm going to Rome as well. In fact, while he's in Jerusalem, he receives a word from the Holy Spirit again, a vision of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, Don't stop testifying about me just like you've testified about me in Jerusalem. You will testify about me in Rome as well. So it's Paul's appeal to Caesar that actually fulfills those promises that God has made to him about going on uh, to Rome. Uh, proving, Proving that God was in control. Amen. Aren't you thankful that God is always in control? So it's his decision that sends him on uh, to Rome. Paul may not have planned it that way, um, but God was in control, nevertheless. In fact, uh, it's a great irony, but it's also a wonderful, reassuring comfort to know that, that even in those moments when our lives feel out of control, how many know they are still safely in the control of our Heavenly Father? That even when we're scratching our head wondering, I don't know where this is going. I don't know why this is happening. God, Again, God's not scratching his head. He's in control. Somebody say praise the Lord. Amen. So even in, amen, even in those moments when our lives feel out of control, God is still in control. And that's maybe how Paul uh, felt. Maybe he felt out of control. Maybe he felt, I mean, he had been in prison for two years just sitting in Caesarea. And so maybe he felt frustrated. Maybe he felt powerless, uh, powerless to control what was happening to him. It's obvious that Paul's not in control at at this point. Festus is in control. Felix is in control. Festus is in control. To an extent, the Jews are kind of in control because They're wanting to do a favor for the Jews, and so it seems like everybody else is in control except for Paul. Paul maybe felt frustrated and confused and and out of control. He was falsely accused. He was unjustly imprisoned. He had been shuffled around. He had been stuck away for two years, and it seems that Paul now has become a curiosity that the governor kind of trots out from time to time and says, you know, we want to hear his case again and maybe we can find a way to do a Jew, the Jews a favor in this situation. So it seems that he has become a curiosity. He, is a, he has become a case that can't be closed, a problem that can't be solved. And uh, moreover, his, it seems that his life has become little more than just a bargaining chip between uh, Rome and the Jews, something to be leveraged between the Romans who held him captive and the Jews who were accusing him and wanting him dead. And Paul's apparent position as as little more than a powerless 
poem is illustrated by Luke's narrative, which, which emphasizes the importance and the power of those who are deciding Paul's fate. Did you notice that? Luke points out that when Festus arrives in the province of Judea, that he goes immediately where? To Jerusalem, because Caesarea was the Roman capital, but how many know Jerusalem was kind of the center of power, right? So he goes immediately to Jerusalem, and who does he meet with in Jerusalem? He meets with the chief priests, and he meets with the principal men of the Jews. And uh, they tell him about Paul, and they say, why don't you bring him back to Jerusalem? Because again, they want to kill Paul when he gets back into Jerusalem. And Festus says, what? No, I can't do that. Roman law won't allow me to do that. But why don't you come send your men of authority with me to go to Caesarea? And so when I meet with Paul, uh, maybe they can present their case against Paul. And so what Luke is emphasizing is that there are men of great importance, prominent men, important individuals that are deciding Paul's uh, fate. In fact, um, the contrast is made even sharper later on in the chapter when Festus, um, when Festus encounters King Agrippa and Bernice. Um, they arrive in Caesarea and Festus tells Agrippa and Bernice about the prisoner that he has inherited from Felix. And so Agrippa, King Agrippa and Bernice, they desire to hear Paul as well. And so Festus arranges the meeting between Agrippa, Bernice, and Paul. And so I want to pick back up and read a few more verses in chapter 25. Look at verse number 23. So on the next day, this is after Agrippa and Bernice have arrived in Caesarea, Festus has told them about Paul and they have said, we want to meet with Paul so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with you, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he's done nothing deserving death and as he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. King Agrippa, this is actually uh, Agrippa II, King Agrippa was the, um, actually the great-grandson of, of Herod the Great. He was, in fact, he was the last ruler of that particular dynasty. He was the last one to bear the title King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Um, Bernice, Bernice was his sister and actually um, incestuous lover as well. And it was a distinction that had earned her the title the great queen, the great queen. Paul's, Paul's trial before Herod Agrippa continues the parallels that Luke draws between Jesus and Paul. Just like Jesus stood trial before Herod, then Paul stands trial before Herod Agrippa II. However, uh, Luke's narrative also highlights the contrast 
that exists in this particular chapter, the one that I alluded to earlier, that Paul, uh, as a prisoner, a lowly prisoner, is in the company of many prominent and powerful men, and as it turns out, women as well. They are deciding his fate. And so Festus stages this scene to communicate the importance of every individual that is attending this trial. Did you notice Agrippa and Bernice arrived with great pomp? Great pomp. They entered into the audience hall followed by the military tribunes who were probably dressed in their military uh, uniforms. They, the military tribunes, are followed by the prominent men uh, of the city. It's, here's the thing. It's a, it's a virtual who's who of Judea a meeting of the great and the powerful persons of, of the province. And into this scene steps a haggard uh, prisoner escorted by guards and, and in chains. Um, in, in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul, we don't really have a reliable description of Paul, but in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul quoted others who, say, who had said about Paul, said his words are strong and mighty, but his appearance is, quote, unimpressive. In fact, several times Paul himself hinted that he suffered from physical uh, infirmities. We know that his body had been ravaged by shipwrecks and by beatings and by stonings and by deprivation. Um, in fact, the only physical description that we have of the Apostle Paul was included in what we would consider a, a dubious letter, a dubious text that was written by a second century church leader. So we, we don't know whether to believe it absolutely or not. But here's, what, here's that description of the Apostle Paul in the second century. It says that he was a man of middling size and his hair was scanty, a nice way of saying he was bald, right? His hair was scanty, his legs were a little crooked, and his knees were far apart. He was bow-legged. He had large eyes and his eyebrows met at a unibrow, right? And his nose was somewhat long. Well, if if we're to believe that description of the Apostle Paul, how many knows unimpressive might be an understatement, right? <laughs> it might be an understatement. Besides, remember, he had been in prison for two years. The Apostle Paul had been in prison for two years. In fact, there's, there's several paintings uh, that have been done of this scene. Paul, you can Google them later if you want to, Paul before Agrippa. And, and some of them are very good uh, pictures. Uh, they all picture the pomp and uh, the power of Festus and Agrippa sitting on their thrones, uh, decked out in royal robes and uh, with extravagance. So they all picture the power, the pomp of Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. A few uh, include the chains that Paul is wearing. Not all of them, uh, but a few picture the chains that he's bound uh, in. But none quite capture uh, the contrast of Paul's physical weakness and his relative vulnerability in that scene. that He's just one man, an old man, um, an infirm man, 
in front of all of these powerful and impressive people. Therefore, all of them, or most of them, fail to communicate what Luke, what Luke wants to convey in this scene. And that is that all of these men and this woman, that all of these men who are so prominent in, in their day, so important in, in their day, all of them are now forgotten. But Paul is remembered. Paul is remembered. The military tribunes who, who commanded thousands of men who just had to speak a word and they obeyed their command. Those military tribunes are now gone to their graves. Their words are not listened to uh, anymore. Even, even Festus and probably Agrippa and to Bernice, uh, probably they would be unknown to us today if it hadn't been for this meeting that they had with the Apostle Paul. In fact, here's how F.F. F. Bruce puts it in his commentary on Acts. He says, all of these important people would have been greatly surprised could they have foreseen the relative estimates that later generations would form of them and of the prisoner who now stood before them. So in other words, Paul may have, may have appeared to be pitiful and powerless as, as he stood before the pomp and the importance of Festus and Agrippa and Bernice. But in truth, in truth, he was the most consequential person in that audience hall. He was the greatest person in that audience hall. His words have been preserved for over 2,000 years. His name is known in every country of the world. He has influenced and instructed billions of people. His wisdom and his authority are still honored by churches today. He, is, he has proven to be much greater than Festus. Amen. He has proven to be much greater than Agrippa or even the great queen, Bernice, because, and here's, here's the reason why, and it's because greatness is not measured by what men think of you, but rather what God thinks of you. Greatness is not measured by what man sees in you. It's not measured by even by what you think of yourself. Greatness is measured by what God thinks of you. And, and this is the choice that we all make when we decide to follow Jesus Christ. Do I want to be great before men or do I want to be great before God? Do I, do I want to make myself great in the eyes of man or do I want to make myself great in the eyes of God? If it's your concern to be great before men, then you will always try to control your life and do those things that will impress man. Whereas if you're concerned with being great before God, then you'll give up that control to God and you'll trust in Him. This, this is what Jesus said, in fact. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul was... Paul was great because he had given up on trying to be great. 
He had given up on trying to control his own life. The things that make men great in the eyes of the world, money, power, um, fame, influence, none of that None of that mattered to Paul anymore. What mattered to Paul was him knowing and doing the will of God. And that's what made him truly great, a great man. I'm going to ask you this morning, in just a couple of minutes I've got left, do you want to be great this morning? All of us want to be great. The question is, do you want to be great in the eyes of man, or do you want to be great in the eyes of God? Well, there's three marks of greatness in the eyes of God, all right? Paul demonstrates each one of these marks. Let me give them to you uh, relatively quickly this morning. First mark of greatness in the eyes of God is a servant's heart. A servant's heart. In Matthew chapter 20, you might remember a dispute arose among the disciples and uh, they began to debate about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. When Jesus came into his kingdom, they were debating among themselves who's going to be uh, greatest. You might remember James and John had their mother kind of lobby Jesus on their behalf and said, I want one to sit at your right hand, one at your left hand, and it caused a controversy among the disciples. They began to argue among themselves who was the greatest among them. When Jesus learned about the dispute between his disciples, you remember what he said to them? He called them all together, sat them down, and he said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave you see greatness in the eyes of god is to give yourself to something greater than yourself to live for something that is beyond you something that is more important than you paul had given himself to Jesus Christ, and to live for his kingdom, to preach the gospel. He was singularly focused on doing the will of God. He was a servant. He had a true servant's heart. If you want to be great, then you must be willing to give yourself to something greater than yourself. Number two, the second mark of greatness in the eyes of God is, interestingly enough, is a life of suffering. A life of suffering. A.W. Tozer once said, probably I've used this quote before, he said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he hurts him deeply. In other words, the men and the women that God chooses to use in significant ways are men and women who have learned to suffer greatly and endure suffering. That was certainly the case with the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you can remember all the way back to his conversion, then you'll remember his calling as well. You'll remember that, Jesus, that God told Ananias to go and to baptize Paul. And he said, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You know, the early church considered it a great honor to be chosen to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. It's interesting how we've got that backwards nowadays don't we 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 honor celebrities in the church but but god says it's those that suffer that he can use to the greatest extent so the early church considered it a high honor because it was an opportunity for them to share in the sufferings of jesus christ greatness in the eyes of god 
is to endure pain and to endure sacrifice for the cause of Jesus Christ. Paul was a great man because he suffered greatly for the cause of Jesus Christ. And then a third mark of greatness in the kingdom of God is hidden strength. Hidden strength, hidden strength is, a, is a power that is not our own. It is, it is a power that operates outside of our natural abilities. It, it is a power that operates by virtue of God's Spirit. Remember, not by our might, not by our power, but by His Spirit, right? Paul was a man that operated by the power of God that was in him. Uh, a hidden strength is a power that is concealed by our weaknesses. And of his weaknesses, Paul said that he had many. But here's what Paul said about his weaknesses. He said, I will glory in my weaknesses because it's in my weaknesses. It's because of my weaknesses that God's power is magnified in, in my life. So greatness in the eyes of God is to, is to demonstrate a power that goes beyond your natural abilities your natural human limitations. Greatness in the kingdom of God is a life that is completely surrendered and totally dedicated to Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions or would like more information about following Jesus Christ, please contact us at gladtidings.church. If you live near Dunn, North Carolina, please consider visiting our church on Sunday mornings at 1030. You can also download our church app in the iTunes or Google Play app store and receive updates and notifications. You may use the app to make a financial gift to help support our ministry. God bless you.